Well, good morning, Redemption. Uh, my name is Josh Butler, one of the pastors here. It is good to be with you. Now, don't you hate it when you come up with the perfect comeback line, but it's after the event, right? <laughs> you're in a conversation with a group of friends and someone kind of zings you, gets you, and you're like, ah, oh, you're just kind of caught fight or flight in the moment. You're not sure what to say. But then as you leave later, your creative bang kicks back in and you're like, oh, that would have been the perfect line to get them back. I don't know about you, but I can get obsessive and start to stew over things like this and start to think, man, planning for future conversations, like I'll get them to say this and then I'll say that, then they'll say this and I'll say this back. And if you're any uh, Seinfeld fans in the room, Lori Green, uh, this is George Costanza, right? Like flying all the way to Akron, Ohio, just to get back into the meeting with the guy who got him in a prior meeting. And he's there, he's wolfing down all the shrimp, just tempting the guy to say his line. And sure enough, his nemesis, he, he says it, he says, hey, George, the ocean called and they're running out of shrimp, to which he brings his perfect one-liner comeback line, yeah, well, the jerk store called and they're running out of you. To which the guy comes right back, yeah, you're their all-time bestseller. And he's, ah, he doesn't know what to say. Got caught again. <laughs> well, it's interesting. The French actually have a phrase for this. It is uh, l'esprit de la scalière, if I pronounce that right. <laughs> uh, the wit of the staircase. And it came from the 18th century where French housing, you know, was kind of tall. And many, many stories and living residences were up high on the top stories. And so the idea was you would be at a party and having a talk in someone's residence and they would zing you and you wouldn't know what to say in the moment. But later as you were walking back down the stairs, ah, the perfect line, the wit of the staircase would come back to you. And what this shows is that we want revenge. We want to get even, to come out on top. And this is more than just words. The greater the insult, the greater our desire for vengeance, when someone has either insulted or wounded or hurt us. And the question arises, what would you do if you had the opportunity for the perfect comeback to the person who had most deeply hurt you? What would you and I do if we had the opportunity for the perfect comeback? Well, today, we're looking at a passage where David has the opportunity for the perfect comeback. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 24, so if you have your Bible, if you want to turn there to 1 Samuel 24, and we're going to see in this passage, David has not only been insulted with words, but he has been being hunted down for his life. Saul has been hunting down David, tracking him down, seeking to kill him. As we have seen the last few weeks in our We Want a King series, God has rejected Saul as king and has chosen David as king, and now Saul feels threatened. He is resisting what God is doing, and he is coming after Saul. He will do anything to protect his power. Now, David has had a long time on the run in the wilderness to stew on the perfect response, to think about here how he would respond if he had the chance for revenge. And yet here, we're going to see when he has the opportunity for the perfect comeback, he doesn't take it. David actually shows us in this passage how we can let go of our desire for revenge. Do you wish that you could let go of your desire to get even, to get back? Are you perhaps stewing with bitterness or contempt over someone who has wronged you in the past and hurt you? It can be hard to know where do we go with all of that emotion and that feeling, that desire for vindication. David's gonna show us how we can find freedom to move forward today. Now, the title for this message is Vengeance is the Lord's. Let's jump in. 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. We read, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. 
Now in Hebrew, en gedi means a spring of a young goat. And so David's in the wilderness of the spring of a young goat. And then in verse two, it says, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out to all of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. So there's some goats imagery going on here. The author says, and he came to the sheepfolds by the way. So this imagery of goats and sheep, and uh, the author is highlighting this imagery for a reason. I think he wants us to see David as Saul was supposed to be like a shepherd to David, to care as king for the sheep of his fold, of his nation. And yet David is being chased out into the wilderness like a wild goat, driven out into the wild, scraping for survival. And Saul is coming and hunting him down. And so there, the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. That phrase, relieve himself, it's literally in Hebrew, to cover his feet. And so it's kind of like you can picture you're walking by the bathroom stall and you see someone's pants around their shoes or whatever. You're like, Saul's going into number two, right? He's putting his shoes around his feet to relieve himself. And David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as, as it shall seem good to you. So his friends are going, David, this is your chance for the perfect comeback. God has given him into your hands. Here's your shot for all of us. Take it. And then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. It is powerful when you show mercy over judgment. When you choose mercy over judgment, David does that here. He chooses mercy over judgment. David has an opportunity here for the perfect comeback to kill Saul. Now, Saul has to take a potty break here while he's out on the run seeking to chase down and hunt down David. And I can remember uh, being a kid, I was playing hide and seek with a family, you know, extended family. And, and I decided I'm going to hide in the shower. And so I hid in the shower and, the, you know, the curtain was closed. And then my cousin came in and went to use the restroom and was older. And I found myself in this catch-22. Do I let them know that I'm here? But then that spoils my hiding spot. And while I was debating, I just go, the time passed. And I'm like, oh, it's too late now. So I didn't say anything. And would have been embarrassed. But David, similarly, he finds himself in a spot here where David knows that Saul is there, but Saul doesn't know that David is there. And that means that Saul is vulnerable. David has the perfect opportunity to get his revenge, to take Saul's life and to spare David's own life. But David instead shows mercy. He spares Saul's life. Instead, he cuts off a corner of the robe. Now, Excuse me. That's interesting. The corner of the robe, that has some symbolic associations. Literally in the Hebrew, the word is edge or the wing, the wing of the robe. And uh, this has symbolic associations of protection or covering. And so Saul was supposed to cover David with his robe metaphorically, meaning having David under his cover and his protection, similar to how God said they put Israel under the wing of his robe to care for them. But instead, David has been pulled out from under Saul's protection, like this torn corner of the robe. Another association comes from 1 Samuel 15, earlier where Saul, if you remember a few weeks ago, Saul uh, cut off the edge of Samuel's robe. And Samuel said, hey, this is a sign that similar to how you've torn off this corner of the robe, so Saul, the kingdom is going to be torn from you and given to David. 
So this kind of harkens back in our mind. The kingdom is about to be taken from Saul and given to David. Now, David's men are saying, hey, David, here's your chance. Like, take him out. God has given you this opportunity. Sometimes people will mislabel an opportunity for revenge as God when God's actually given you the opportunity to show mercy. Verse 5, it says that David still sees Saul as God's anointed. He even feels bad after he cut Saul's robe. Like, what is going on with that? Like, he even feels worried about that. And so David shows mercy over judgment. Now, it's powerful when we choose mercy over judgment. Uh, I've learned a lot about this from Marcus Stowe. If you don't know Marcus, Marcus is a pastor at Redemption. He's a pastor at our Tucson congregation, Redemption Tucson. And Marcus has a powerful story, but he would say that he spent, he would say, I spent 18 years, he says, plotting a murder. I spent 18 years with one single goal to find the man who had wronged me and to murder him. See, Marcus is from Liberia, and when he was 11 years old and Liberia was in civil war, a man who he referred to as General X came and murdered his father. Marcus became an orphan and a refugee in America, losing his family, and he came to America obsessed with secretly plotting revenge. He says that he would imagine himself with General X bound in a chair, and he would see himself holding a machete in one hand and a pistol in the other, and with General X begging for his life, and him fantasizing about this opportunity to get his revenge, and understandably so. For 18 years, he said, this just consumed him, this obsession. Well, eventually, the gospel got a hold of his life. He found the mercy that he had received in Christ, that he began doing the work of forgiving this General X. And rather than a machete, he began to reimagine himself instead sitting down in a chair across from him and asking questions, why? Like, why did you do this? What has happened to your own story to bring you to this place? And he actually went back to Liberia to try and find General X. It says he was sitting in the barbershop getting his hair cut, and when the blade came down to shave his neck, he flinched because he realized that the barber, probably a child soldier, they were around the same age, back in the day would have killed him as being from the other side. But he began to find empathy for these child soldiers who had been ravaged by the war like he had. He eventually found General X, what had happened to him, and he found that he had died 11 years earlier, a victim of violence, that the violence had come back on his own head. And he realized he had been obsessing over someone whose violence had already caught up with him. He's dead. He found the woman who had poisoned his mom, and he showed her mercy rather than judgment. He began building trust and a relationship with her. And talking with him this week, he says he now supports her children through school. Uh, Just recently, this is the time of year where kids are getting right back to go to school, so they were having a conversation on the phone, and he's continuing to financially support as he has shown mercy to rebuild, and that that mercy impacted her deeply and has transformed and changed so much in her and in the way that he understands and processes his own history. Marcus chose mercy over judgment. 
And it's powerful when you and I choose mercy over judgment. I wonder whether is there someone that God is calling you to show mercy to rather than judgment. Maybe it is a spouse who has hurt you. Maybe it's an employer who fired you. Maybe it's your friend who still owes you 50 bucks. I don't know. But is there someone in your life, if Marcus can show mercy in that kind of circumstance, and if Christ has shown mercy to us in the depths of our predicament and our sin and need, Who is God calling you to show mercy to, to extend and choose mercy over judgment? Now, Marcus says, hey, mercy is not opposed to justice. One of the challenges, you might struggle with that because you might be going, well, if I show mercy, then I'm letting go of a desire for justice. And Marcus goes, no, mercy and justice are not opposed, but your mercy paves the way for forgiveness and reconciliation. And yet you entrust justice and judgment into the hands of God. You can let go, take it out of your own hands when you put it in the hands of God, and it can give you power to show the kind of mercy that you have been shown in Christ. And you and I, you can show great mercy when you realize how much great of a mercy you have been shown. Romans 5 says that when you and I, when we were enemies, Christ died for us. He died for us not when we were his friends, but when we were his enemies. Romans 6 goes on to say that the wages of our sin was death, but thanks be to God, Jesus has paid your debt, that Jesus showed you mercy rather than judgment. When you and I deserved judgment, Christ showed mercy, and now we have this reality of going, man, you and I, you were like We were in the darkness of the cave of our sin, and we were surrounded by the stench of our own refuse. And you and I, we didn't even realize that the sword of God's judgment as king was hanging over our head, and yet Christ showed you mercy rather than judgment. And now here's the thing. How do you pay back so great a mercy to Christ? You can't. You can't pay it back, but you can pay it forward. That you and I are called to show mercy and choose mercy over judgment as a sign of the mercy that you and I have received. That is why Jesus says to love your enemies, to bless those who persecute you, that in so doing, you are, if they're unrepentant, you're heaping burning coals on their head by responding with kindness. And if they are repentant, it can pave the way for grace. It is powerful when, like David and like Marcus, when Ultimately, like Jesus, when you and I choose mercy over judgment. James 2 says that mercy triumphs over judgment. And so when you're struggling to show mercy, the first antidote, when we're stewing and bitter and raging, the first antidote is to remember and look at the mercy that you have been shown. Then we are able to choose mercy over judgment. This raises a challenge for us, however. Uh, does this mean like I'm letting go of justice? Like again, like there, there's something right to a desire for vindication. Does this mean we're letting go of a desire for vindication? No. As David's going to explain next here in verse 8. <clears throat> says, afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. My Lord, the king, and when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. So David is still treating Saul as king. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. 
see my father. Look, he calls him his father, which is true. Saul is David's father-in-law. He's married to Saul's daughter. You think your in-laws are a problem, right? (laughs) See the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. Now catch this. This is, this is important. This is key here. He says, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David looks to God for justice. Verse 13, he says, as the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. It's basically like saying, uh, man, you know, if you don't beware lest in fighting the beast, you become like the beast, right? He's, David's going, I'm not going to stoop down to your level and participate in the wickedness that you're in, because out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea, he's going, who am I? What kind of threat am I to you? May the Lord, therefore, again, he's focusing on God, may the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Excuse me. Vengeance is the Lord's. Here's the secret that David shows us, that vengeance is the Lord's. You can take vengeance out of your own hands when you put it into God's. David recognizes here that vengeance is the Lord's. In verse 12, he says twice, the Lord will judge and avenge me. I won't do it myself. Verse 15, he reemphasizes the Lord will judge. David is able to be the bigger man. He is able to take the high road because he looks to God for justice rather than taking vengeance into his own hand. He trusts God to vindicate and deliver him. And it's interesting here, like this is what gives him the strength to show mercy. And he's able to even still treat Saul as king. In verse eight, he calls Saul, my Lord, the king. And he bows down and he pays homage to him. And three times he refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed. David respects the office even if the person in that office is not worthy or deserving of such respect. David has an opportunity for the perfect comeback here. Uh, There are actually three stories in a row. This in the next two chapters, chapter 24, 25, 26. Thank you. Uh, Cat in my throat. throat) Thank you. Uh, Chapters 24, 25, 26 are all stories where David has an opportunity to take vengeance. And the question is, the big question going on in this section of scripture is, will he do it? Will he take this opportunity for vengeance? It's interesting, last week, John Crawford was preaching on the making of a monster. And what we saw is that in these prior chapters, the emphasis has been on Saul's agency, where Saul has been rejecting wisdom, rejecting relationships, rejecting God, and spiraling out into becoming this tyrant. But now in these next few chapters, there's a shift where the emphasis is now on David's agency, going, how is he going to respond to this monster that is coming after him? Is he going to become like the beast in fighting the beast? Or is he going to look to God for vengeance and vindication and live uprightly in the midst of Saul's tyrannical pursuit? What we find here is that David passes the test. This is important for the character of God's king, for a king after God's own heart, is that David is able to take vengeance out of his own hands and trust it into the hands of God. 
This is powerful for you and I, is that you you and I, we can take vengeance out of our own hands when we place it into the hands of God. Rachel Denhollander is one of the most powerful examples I've seen recent years of this. If you're unfamiliar with Rachel, she was the first woman to publicly accuse Larry Nassar. Now, Larry Nassar, he, for 18 years, he was the team doctor for the U.S. Women's National Gymnastics Team, and he used his position to exploit and sexually assault hundreds of young children and young women. This led to the USA Gymnastics uh, sex abuse scandal in 2015. Now, Den Hollander again, Rachel, she was the first woman to publicly accuse him, and this led to hundreds of other accusations coming forth, and now Nasser's life in prison. She's a devout Christian, and uh, she had a powerful statement to the court. It's long, you can read the whole thing online, but one of the things she said was that many people would quote the part in my statement where I offered my forgiveness to Larry. I said, I, I forgive you as a Christian, I offer my forgiveness. But what she said was virtually nobody quoted the part where I talked about what gave me the strength and power to forgive related to God's vengeance. So I want to read that portion here, because she says it was this that helped give her the strength to offer such forgiveness. Uh, Larry had a Bible he carried with him in court, and she said this. She says, the Bible you speak of, Larry, this carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt, she goes on, so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. She goes on to say, Larry, I can call what you did evil and wicked because it was, and I know it was evil and wicked because the straight line exists. The straight line is not measured based on your perception or anyone else's perceptions, and this means I can speak the truth about my abuse without minimization or mitigation. She's saying the straight line exists because of who God is, and she goes on, I, and I can call it evil because I know what goodness is, and this is why I pity you. It's because when a person loses the ability to define good and evil, like Saul has in our passage here today, when they cannot define evil, they can no longer define and enjoy what is truly good. When a person can harm another human being, especially a child, without true guilt, they have lost the ability to truly love. Larry, you have shut yourself off from every truly beautiful and good thing in this world that could have and should have brought you joy and fulfillment, and I pity you for it. You could have had everything you pretended to be. It was Rachel's belief in God's vengeance that gave her the strength to forgive. I want to make a a few observations here. I think there's a couple of things that are worth noting in in what she said. One is that her personal forgiveness did not mean abandoning a pursuit of justice, right? Uh, Some mistakenly think forgiveness means letting go of justice, but she still pled before the court, asking the court to impose the maximum penalty of a life sentence to send a public message about what a little girl's life is worth. And the state or the government has a role in justice in executing God's wrath against evildoers, Romans 13 says. And so we can show personal forgiveness while still seeking public justice, taking personal vendetta out of our hand and seeking to place it before God and such authorities. 
Second observation is that her offer of forgiveness did not mean ignoring or minimizing what he had done. Sometimes I think we can have kind of a, a call to cheap forgiveness. It's just sort of oh, mercy, just, just, just pretend nothing bad happened. But no, she's still called evil, evil. Because of God's justice, which she called the straight line, she could call out directly his crookedness and entrust judgment to the authorities and ultimately unto God. The third observation here is that what gave her the strength to show the mercy of forgiveness was entrusting vengeance to God. She didn't let go of a desire for vindication because it didn't matter. She let go of taking it into her own hands and put it into God's instead. And similarly for you and I, we can take vengeance out of our own hands when you put it into God's hands. Some of us, I think, are struggling to forgive because we think that it means letting go of a hope for justice. But no, it's, it's not that justice and vindication don't matter. It's who we're looking to ultimately for to get it. We can take it out of our own hands because we trust God to be the one who ultimately has it. It was, there was a scene in the courtroom where another father, a father, a victim of three, uh, three of his daughters have been victims of Nasser, and, and you could feel the pain in him, and he rushed seeking to attack Larry, and, and he couldn't get to him. It was this father trying to get to him, and he couldn't get to him. The guards restrained him. But the thing was, even though he couldn't, Rachel was entrusting herself to a heavenly father who will get to him, right? That he has two choices, either to fall on the mercy of Christ and to experience true repentance and healing and restoration and reconciliation, or to have the vengeance of God still remain on him, right? That Rachel was not being naive. She was entrusting herself to a heavenly father who has the strength, who holds Larry's ultimate future in his hands. And she was able to let go of vengeance in her own hands because she was entrusting it into God's hands. And you can too. What this means is that you don't need to let go of justice. You don't need to let go of a desire for vindication to let go instead, though, of your desire for personal retaliation that you can live a life of non-retaliation, of not seeking revenge, of repaying with mercy and kindness because justice, ultimately, you're entrusting it into the hands of your heavenly father. And in his hands, it is secure. A second thing here is I think some of us have minimized God's vengeance because we think it makes God more kind. But that is not true. That's a danger today. There are some who want to make God like a cosmic teddy bear who only comforts you and never confronts you, right? Who doesn't confront the sin and the wickedness and the depravity and the injustice and all that in our world. But the reality is we need God's justice. We need God to come and to call evil, evil, and to call to set things right, to reestablish justice in the world. I have been overseas with people in Cambodia and Rwanda, aftermath of some of the worst genocides of the 20th century, and people who would say, I forgive my enemies. I retaliate, not because justice doesn't matter, but because I'm looking to God who is bringing it. Miroslav Volf, he's a Croatian theologian. He writes coming out of like the former Yugoslavia, like a genocidal war zone. He says, man, in order to truly forgive, in order to truly pursue peacemaking and reconciliation, you have to believe that God's vengeance is coming. It's like many Christians in the West, they don't get this they, it, because it's in the quiet of a suburban home where you can kind of think that peace, living peaceably means having a God who refuses to judge. But if you live in the war zones, he says, if you live in a place where you've seen your fathers and brothers' throats slit, 
and you've seen your mothers and sisters raped, where do you go with the just desire for vindication for the horrible wrong that's been done? He says, you need to know that God is coming and he is bringing his justice. He is bringing his just vengeance in the world. And because you are entrusting it into his hands, that is the only thing that can give you the strength to take it out of your own. So don't settle for the fuzzy-wuzzy God, like the minimized minimization of God's justice. We need God's justice desperately. Our world is ravaged, and we need God to come and to establish and set things right. And all of us fall short before the, the, the cross, and what we need is the mercy of Christ to restore and set us right by the justice of God and the mercy of God in Christ to reestablish healing in his world. We are able to take the desire for vengeance out of our own hands when we place it in God's and say, vengeance is the Lord's. Well, is there any hope for what this can accomplish? Can this actually do anything, not just in the by and by, but in the here and now? And it can. We see that next in verse 16. Or as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? He calls him my son. His father's heart is returning. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He is weeping. He is coming back to his senses. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. He sees how David has been upright, even when he is not. And you have declared this day who you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. He's saying, hey, I recognize you're upright. You're living right, not the way I am. And God's gonna give the kingdom into your hands. It says, swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. He's saying, when you're king one day, will you show me mercy, mercy to my house, my people? And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Kindness can lead to repentance. We see here the power of a kindness that can lead to repentance. David's kindness leads to Saul's repentance, at least for a time. Saul recognizes David's kindness here. He says, I've given you good, he says, but you, I've given you evil, but you've repaid me with good. Saul says, I have made myself your enemy, and yet you didn't kill me when you had the chance. Saul repents, at least temporarily, for a time here. He recognizes what he's done, and he sees that David has been more righteous than him, and he asks David for future mercy. And this is a gospel truth that kindness can lead to repentance. The kindness that Marcus showed to the woman who had killed, poisoned his mother, it led to a deeper experience of repentance on her part. I remember uh, this last year I had said something in passing, uh, something I shouldn't have, I wasn't thinking, uh, related to a friend of mine, and that friend came back to me, actually, and 
said, hey, Josh, what you said, it made me angry. It made me really angry. But I'm choosing to show grace, to believe the best about you, intentions, and I, I forgive you. And immediately when they said it, I just, I, I saw, I realized what I'd said. I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. And I was stepped into a conversation, and we had an hour together of just seeking to listen and hear and understand. And they approached me with kindness, not minimizing what I said, but confronting it directly. And the reality is, if they had come at me like guns blazing, hey, Josh, I can't believe you said this, and da, 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 I probably would have been like, whoa, whoa, whoa I, what are you talking about? I didn't, I, I didn't mean it like that. And what do you say? Like, I still should have repented, but their kindness towards me, not minimizing, calling it out, and yet with a posture of kindness and forgiveness, paved the way and made it so much easier to lead into repentance. I believe this is a sign of the gospel. Romans 2 says that God's kindness in Christ, it leads you and I to repentance. Like the, that's the goal is God is out to restore us. His kindness in Christ is working towards our repentance, our reconciliation, our restoration. And this got me thinking, what would it be like if we as a church, if we were a community that was plotting comebacks of kindness? Like rather than comebacks of revenge, if you and I, if we were plotting comebacks of kindness when wrong is done to us. Uh, I believe our leader in this regard is Jim Mullins. Jim is the king of comebacks of kindness. Many of you have probably experienced things like this before. Uh, but one example of this was in 2020. There was a so Jim is one of our lead pastors here, and Jim, uh, so he's a lead pastor here, and there was in 2020 a group of high schoolers who, after a monsoon, uh, did donuts on our football field here, right? Now, they just destroyed the field. They tore it up bad, right? And not only that, but this was the time of year when the pandemic was happening, so we were having outdoor services on the football field, so it was like they just tore apart our sanctuary, right? And we were all like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And then the, they got caught, though, so we knew who it was. And so the damages were $800. And so what Jim's idea, he kind of dreamed up, was he set up a meeting with them. They had to pay back the $800 and set up the meeting with them. And they were, came expecting to be lectured. But instead of this meeting, Jim and the crew brought breakfast for them, right, and had this breakfast feast for them. And when they came, what they found is we said, hey, we've forgiven the debt of $800, and we, we have put the, the $800 broken out into eight envelopes, $100 each. And we said, hey, we want you guys to take these $100 each and use them to bless certain people. So one envelope was to honor a teacher at their school. Another envelope was to uh, bless someone they knew who was sick with cancer. Another envelope was to prepare a meal and a feast for someone who was elderly, like in a nursing home, and to ask them to share stories of wisdom in their life. Another $100 was them to plot and plan something special to do for someone at their school with special needs. And the final $100, to their surprise, was for them to go and have an amazing fun time together doing something that was a blast and did not involve donuts <laughs> in our football field, right? <laughs> it was fascinating how their posture changed. Like that is, they showed up that morning, they arrived with arms folded, with head down, and, uh, with a defensive look in their eyes. And yet you could see them as they began to see the breakfast and hear the plan unfold, their shoulders loosen, 
their posture softened, their smiles begin. And there were some who kind of resisted it at first. You, you could tell they were like, man, I don't, I don't want it to be about grace. I want to work for it, right? I got I to gotta work off, pay this thing off. But eventually they all melted under this kindness and it provoked a type of repentance, right? Softness. And it's got me wondering, what if we were a community that plotted kindness, comebacks of kindness, that if you and I, as followers of Jesus, when we are wrong, that our first response would not be, how do I get revenge? But we would begin to go, how do I actually extend the kindness that I have received in Christ? Because your kindness, not only can it lead to repentance, it can be a sign of what Christ has done for you. That as Christ hung on the cross, he could have called down the angel armies to execute the vengeance of God upon us. But no, he did not. Instead of doing that, he entrusted vindication to God and he gave, he not only didn't take your life, he gave his life for you. He gave his life for you and I while we were yet his enemies. Jesus repaid your evil with good. Jesus returned my wickedness with kindness. And when we see that reality of the gospel, that is what can give us the strength to not only entrust vengeance into God's hands, but to respond with kindness in the hopes that in the here and now, it could lead to repentance and a softening and changing of heart. Beauty of the gospel as well is that Jesus has the perfect comeback, right? It's resurrection. What Jesus' resurrection means is that all the, it's the perfect comeback to evil. It means that evil, destruction, death, even the worst that sin and wickedness can throw, it can't keep God's kingdom down. And whatever the enemy might be trying to throw at you, trying to get you to cave in and to become like the beast and fighting the beast, when you resist, you can resist when the confidence of going, the enemy doesn't have the last word on your story. Resurrection does. God's kingdom does. Jesus does. So I've been thinking this week, man, when I find myself stewing and when you find yourself stewing, like, man, I want the perfect comeback line. I believe the perfect comeback line of the gospel is he is risen, right? When we look to Jesus and his resurrection, we no longer need to take vengeance into our own hands. We can respond with kindness, knowing that justice is coming, but our desire is that people would experience true repentance now, that they would experience the life-changing power of the kindness of God in the midst of their rebellion in order that they might enter the reconciliation and restoration he has for them. Again, Romans 2, it says that God's kindness leads to repentance. That's what God is out for, is actually seeking to restore and transform us. And so I want to invite us to a few things this morning. One is, there may be some of you this morning who are needing to let go of a grudge, to let go of bitterness and rage, or maybe it's something really deep in your story of a deep wound and hurt. And I don't want to pretend like this is just like an overnight thing. You just say the magic words and it's done. For myself and for many of us, this is a process of bringing these things to God and letting his mercy, his forgiveness take root in us to extend to others. But if that's you this morning, if you felt constrained by bitterness and rage or a desire for vengeance, the person who has wounded or hurt you, I want to invite you to the prayer doors this morning. There are going to be people here who would love to pray with you and that you could boldly ask God for that vindication that maybe you rightly desire, but that you could entrust it to his hands and ask what it might mean to 
no longer be bound by the contempt and the, the rage and the, the fury. For others of us, I want to invite, well, I want to invite all of us to renewal night this Wednesday. As Jim talked about earlier, the theme this week is going to be joy and not like the plastic joy we just paper over our problems, but fighting for the joy of God that is able to be with us in the midst of suffering, that is actually defiant against a culture of cynicism and a culture of retribution and a culture of only trying to get my way, that we would be a community that fights for the joy of God, the freedom and forgiveness of God in the midst of a cynical war-torn world. As we do all that, I want to invite you to the table this morning. That as we come to the table, we come to Jesus, the merciful and kind King. We come to his body broken and his blood shed. That Jesus on the cross, he took upon himself the divine vengeance for all of our sin and injustice and evil. He bore the wrath of God in our place in order that we might receive reconciliation and restoration in him. And in so doing, Jesus showed you mercy rather than judgment. Jesus showed you kindness rather than wickedness. And the invitation this morning is to come with gratitude and to say, Jesus, I want to receive that kindness and that mercy that you've given and so that I can extend it so that I can no longer seek to take vengeance into my own hands, but rather I can entrust it into your hands, almighty God, because you're better at it than I am. You know how to accomplish justice better than I do. I can entrust it to you and seek to live as one of your peacemakers in the world today. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you that you are the kind and merciful King, Lord. That your mercy triumphs over judgment, that at the cross you have extended the mercy of God and borne by bearing the judgment of God, divine judgment that was ours to bear that you bore on our behalf. Jesus, we come to you this morning as a community of worship and praise for all you've done. And God, we want to be a community that no longer seeks to plot and stew on revenge, God, but rather we would take the desire, take vengeance out of our own hands and entrust it into yours, God. Your justice is true. Your justice is coming. So I pray for any of us this morning, God, who are struggling to let go of a grudge, who maybe feel in bondage over um, anger, hurt from the past. God, I pray that you would bring about your freedom, not because their desire for vindication doesn't matter, but because they can trust you to bring it in due time, God, in the right way. And Jesus, I pray that we would be a people who are able to plot comebacks of kindness, Lord, as you have done for us. For the foundation of the world, knowing our sin that was coming, our evil that was coming, you plotted the kindness of the cross to welcome us back home, to reconcile us with you, to restore all creation from the donuts that we wield all over whatever, destroying your world, God, that you set set in motion the perfect plan to reconcile creation and to redeem us to yourself. God, we don't want to reject that reconciliation, that offer of forgiveness, that kindness, God. It's, It's by grace and 
God, outside of that grace, outside of Christ, we still stand under judgment, vengeance, and wrath, for we all have done wrong, God. And yet, God, we thank you and we receive your mercy and your kindness in Christ to be reconciled and restored and made whole with you forever. Jesus, it's in your mighty name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.